Everybody can grab a seat. How we doing? Yes, that is a great answer. Um, if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Uh, thank you so much for Kyle teaching last week. Uh, it was great just to be a part of the church and not have to be up here on stage. Um, Luke 9, 18 through 22 is where we're going to camp. While you're flipping there, just a couple quick announcements as we are now officially on summer schedule. Now, I know the school system hasn't quite finished, but as far as college students, you guys are done. We've got a couple graduated. Great. Um, so here's just a couple quick things for the summer. Um, we are going to introduce something. Everybody get two fingers up like this. Do it with me. Don't act too cool. Bree, don't be too cool. Let me see them. And everybody go hashtag. First Sunday fun day. Hashtag first Sunday fun day. This is what this means. Um, June 4th, July 2nd, and August 6th, we are not going to meet in this facility. Um, we are going to uh, July or June 2nd, we're going to meet at Yahula. So we're going to have a little church gathering down by the river and then uh, have picnic, hang out, ultimate frisbee, frisbee golf, whatever it looks like. Um, July 2nd, we're going to do... Um, okay, the Staples. So uh, they've already confirmed. We just didn't confirm the date. So that's not like we just winged all of that. Winged is not a word. Let's keep going. July 2nd, we're going to do the Staples. So they have a pool. They have horses. So we'll maybe do some water polo, just kind of throw it together. So we're going to have, again, we're still going to have a gathering. We're going to worship. We're going to study scripture together. Um, but we're just going to hang out there. And then on August 6th, um, we're going to meet at Greg and Debbie's house. They live on the lake over in Dawsonville. Um, so we'll have boats. We'll have a huge pool party um, that might have some E. coli in there, but that's okay. And so a couple different reasons. One, um, so we can save some money here. That would be one or three times over the summer we don't have to pay rent. Two, give our volunteers a break that we don't have to set up and tear down. And three, just build some community among one another um, outside of this environment. So it'll be more conducive to have a little church gathering, but then just hang out after. So you'll be hearing a lot more about that as we get to the future. Uh, but just remember, first Sunday, fun day. Do not sh if it's the first Sunday of the month, do not show up here. Everybody good? Uh, with that, with the volunteers, um, if you want to help us set up, typically missional communities are the ones that help do all this setup, tear down. Um, at the welcome table on the way out, Kayla has a couple of sheets that you can sign up per month. Um, so sign up for either May, June, July, or August. The more the merrier. That would be awesome. Um, so if you're, on, if you're going to be around here over the summer on your way out, just take a moment and fill out one of those. Um, also, the last thing, and then we'll get started with the sermon. Um, if, for whatever reason, um, we're praying for God to do a bunch of big things this summer for us to continue to grow, reach out to more families, um, but if, for whatever reason, our numbers are dwindling down and it's just wearing us out, setting this whole thing up, um, there's a couple other small rooms that we might rent over on the side for the remainder of the summer, um, but we want to do that to be plan Z. Um, let that be our prayers that we would continue to fill this gym throughout the summer when statistically most, most churches kind of go decreasing over the summer. We're praying that God will just continue to fill this place, continue to fill our homes, fill community. Um, so let that be the prayer for us as we go. Sound good? All right, Luke 9. Now we're going to spend uh, the next two weeks, so this week and next week, covering kind of this passage um, because it's pretty weighty. And when I was reading through and, and getting ready for the sermon, um, the, the story that came to my mind was my wife. Now, if you ever have a sermon that starts with your wife, you know it's going to be good. 
Um, but we used to live in Gainesville on a little house right on Highway 53. Um, and we would have just, I mean, just honestly, some sketch people show up on the door. Like, hey, man, my car broke down. Hey, we ran out of gas. Like, hey, whatever. Um, so my wife is kind of fearful. She's kind of like most women. You just have kind of a phobia of uh, things. And so we had one, the most, one of my favorite stories, this group of college guys, I think they were like amateur football players is what they told me. True or false, I don't know. I ran out of gas, and so we're about a mile and a half away from a gas station. So I said, sure, like, I'll pick you up, and, and we'll go down to the gas station, get you some gas, and bring you back. Um, once I got into the car, that's when he starts really like, this could be a horrible decision. Like, there's five football players that look like football players that could probably manhandle me pretty quickly. Why did I pick them up? So we get back, they're putting gas in their car, and we're talking. And I look up in our window, or our front door was just like a, it was all glass, but it was the powdered glass and had some etching designed into it. So you could only see through in the little etching parts. Uh, but with the light behind her, I mean, we've got shadows, like, with the light behind her, you could clearly see my wife peeking through the glass um, with a, a Taurus 45 pistol in her hand. So the guy saw it, I saw it. I mean, she's watching everything with a pistol right by her side. Gave me a ton of confidence, right? Like, they saw that my wife was packing heat, looking through the window or glass. Like, I was fine at that point. And so I walked back in and said, hey, honey, like, were you scared? She's like, no, I wasn't. I was fine. Are you sure? Because you have a pistol in your hand. And that happened often. I'd come home and there'd just be a knife sitting like casually on the coffee table right next to her. Like, honey, were you, were you scared? Like, no, I'm good. I'm good. Um, and so what we're going to see through this with my wife, like her, even though her words say I'm not scared, the actions prove that she was, right? No one holds a pistol next to their side just for the heck of it. Uh, we're not, we don't, I mean, this was Gainesville, like maybe it's a little hood, but not that hood. She was scared, therefore she had a pistol next to her. And so our actions, no matter what our words say, our actions will always prove the truth that's going in our hearts. And so what we're going to see today with Peter is that, no, again, no matter what our actions say, the truth is how we, or no matter what our words say, the truth is what our actions are. Or maybe another way to say it, what is your doing saying? Not as what your mouth saying. What is your doing saying? What are the actions saying about your character? What are your actions saying about what you believe? So Luke, picking it up in verse 18, uh, chapter 9, verse 18, this is where we're going to be. And this week, there's going to be more of a deconstruction of what we think and what we know. And next week is going to be more of a reconstruction of who we are in Christ and what it really looks like. Um, so make sure you're here for next week as well. Luke 9, picking in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, Jesus, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others say a prophet of old has risen. Verse 20. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So let me pray for us as we start to dive into this. Uh, Father, we, we love you. God, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for a community that can come together and wrestle with this text. And so, Father, we just pray as we study today that, that we would have some, some deconstruction going on in our minds and going in on our hearts. God, that you would 
this week, just kind of take away some idols, take away some things that, that we think are good but are actually keeping us away from you. And Father, allow that to be a firm foundation that then you can build upon as we go from here. So God, we love you and thank you for your word. Amen. Now, as we, we'll kind of work through the text a little bit like we always do, picking it back up in verse 18. Now, it happened as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and asked him, who do the crowds say that I am? So what is happening here is people just don't know what to do with Jesus. He's getting ready to start marching into Jerusalem, and, and so Jerusalem is where all the Jewish people live, and this is where ultimately Jesus is going to die. So they're starting to walk into this. They're leaving more of the Galilean area, more of the Samaritan area, where uh, people were just so excited about Jesus and couldn't figure out why a Jew was coming over to their side of town. He's starting to go into Jerusalem. And so Jesus kind of throws out this, who, who do people say that I am? Because earlier in chapter 9, I think it's verse 7, Herod, who's the tetrarch of the area, he's ruling the area, uh, is very curious who this Jesus guy is. Who is it? What is he doing? Herod, the same lineage that had John the Baptist killed, said, like, did John the Baptist raise? Like, I saw his head on a platter at my party. And is, he, is he now alive again? Is this, is this who this Jesus guy is? They didn't know what to do with him. So he just threw it out to the disciples. Who, who do you think I am? They answer, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others say the prophet of old has risen. So they're here acknowledging that resurrection is a thing. That Jesus, he could be someone resurrected. That that, that society in that time, they didn't think that resurrection, even though it's crazy, they still acknowledge that it could actually, in fact, take place. Verse 20, but then who do you say that I am? Now, this is something, honestly, we should be asking ourselves 30,000 times a day. In every situation, as we're going, as we're thinking, as we're pondering, in this situation, who do I think Christ is? In this moment, who do I really think that Jesus is? In my life right now, with all this craziness or with all this goodness taking place, who do I really think he is? This this question is pivotal for Peter and the disciples, but it didn't end with them. It should constantly be going at, who do we really think Jesus is? Who do we really think Jesus is? You're, you're the Christ of God, Peter said. Now, there's some context that we have to do here. Peter being a Jew, Jesus being a Jew, you're the Christ, you're the Savior, you're the Messiah, Now, what that meant for them was liberation, right? So, I mean, if you know anything about Bible, there's just a huge, long story of God redeeming the people of Israel, redeeming the Jewish people. So for Peter to say, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, you are that. In Peter's mind, here's what that meant. You're going to overthrow the government, you're going to overthrow the army, and the Jewish people are going to have our right standing again. We're going to be ruling all, because right now, they're falling under the Greco-Roman rule. They're having to obey all these rules and all these laws that they cannot stand. They should be the kings of their own palace. They should be the ones ruling where they are. They shouldn't have to listen to um, Herod. They shouldn't have to listen to Rome. They wanted their right standing. So for Peter to say, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, and Peter's mind, he's going, and, and we're about to rule again, baby. It's coming. Our time, you are going to be the one that you're going to defeat all of Rome single-handedly. Let's get the armies together. Let's get the warriors together. It's game on. It's game on. So you can kind of understand that. If you understand that mindset, you'll see what happens next. Verse 21. 
And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, verse 22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, who were all Jewish, right, and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. Jesus goes, yeah, Peter, you're right, you're right. Good job. You, you figured this out. The Holy Spirit has empowered you. You've got the answer right. And because of that, I'm going to die. Wait a second. Uh, you, what? You're going to die? Because I thought you were going to overthrow the government and the Jewish people were going to be ruling again. How, how does that take place through your death? Now, in seminary, my New Testament professor would rail me over the coals for doing this, but I think it's imperative to this story. Everyone flip over to Mark 8. He would say, always just preach from one text. Don't go back and forth within the synoptics, but whatever, he's not here, and I passed his class, so we're going to do it. Mark 8, 31 through 33. So Matthew and Mark, the other synoptics of the gospel, they both include the story. For whatever reason, Luke doesn't. Um, but I think it's imperative to understand how Peter responded and, and what was taking place here. Mark 8, 31 through 33. Everyone there? And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days arise. So we've already covered that part through Luke. Verse 32, and he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, uh -oh, for you are not setting your mind to the thing of God, but on the things of man. So you've got Peter, just this interesting character. I, I resonate a lot with Peter. That how could he be literally within... 30 seconds of each other, how could he be 100% right and 100% wrong? I mean, how could he say the right thing instantly and then turn around and be the bad guy? Now, if you're married, you know that feeling. I'm just kidding. None of y'all are married, so two people got that joke. <laughs> just wait till you get married. So how could Peter be 100% right in what he's saying, but the way he interpreted what Jesus said, he turned out to be 100% wrong? Again, just like with Bree, what are your actions actually saying? Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, but Peter's idea of being the Christ and being the Messiah was going to benefit Peter like crazy. That if here's Jesus, if here's this guy that's going to rule and he's going to take and he's going to overthrow the Roman government, well, who does that make me then? I'm one of his 12, I'm one of his boys. So if, if Jesus is going to do that, if he's the Christ, if he's the Messiah, and I get to be a part of that, like, I'm going to be up in the, I'm going to be ruling this thing, baby. I've got this. I'm in a good spot. Jesus goes, oh, yeah, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah, and I'm about to die. Um, you're about to what? So even though Peter confessed with his mouth that Jesus is Christ, his actions look totally different. Are we tracking? And I think that's where a lot of us are, really. We understand. I mean, we've done this before, but I'll do it again. Raise your hand if you were born and raised in the South. Okay, raise, keep your hand up if you were raised in church. So the majority of this room. So we understand Christ. At least we think we do. We understand Jesus. At least we think we do. And we can give the correct answers. At least we think we can. 
But if we start tracking how those answers affect our day-to-day life, is it really adding up? If we never proclaimed anything, just the way we lived, would people see that we're following a higher deity? They wouldn't know it was Jesus. But would we see that the way we live today changes how we make decisions, how we feel, how we act, how we control ourselves? Is it that much in our life? If we were not able to speak, would we still proclaim Jesus? So our actions really show who we think Jesus is, not our words. Words can be empty. Actions cannot. So I don't really know who to give credit to for this, um, and I'm hoping that one day we're going to be able to stop and go through all of these. Um, Actually, in the next 10 minutes, I'm going to try to get through these. Each one of these should really be a full sermon within themselves. Um, But what this is, is called the four G's. Has anyone ever heard of it? So what it's going to help us do this morning in the deconstruction phase is help us to figure out, even though we're professing Jesus as Christ, what idol are we holding higher than Christ? So we say we believe in Jesus, but for Peter, what was, it? was he actually saying, yes, you're the Messiah, or you're the Messiah, this is going to end well for me, good for me, and then he's heartbroken when Jesus says he's going to die. His whole life, his whole framework, so he pulls Jesus aside and starts to rebuke him like he can rebuke Jesus. I love it. What kind of confidence and idiocracy in the same sentence. So what does it look like as we start going through these four Gs? And and here's kind of the deal. Uh, You're probably going to have a twinge of all of these. You're going to have a twinge of, but there's going to be one or two that's really going to sit heavy for you this morning. And it's going to help you to understand um, where we're professing Christ, but maybe what we're holding higher than him. Here's just kind of a hint that as I was going through this, here's what I learned. The one you catch yourself arguing with, the one of these four points I'm about to make that you catch yourself arguing with is probably the one that you struggle with the most. So just get this as your framework. The one you catch yourself arguing with the most is probably the one you're experiencing the most. So I've got it on the screen, but you... Can anyone actually read that? That's my fault. I should have made it a little bigger. Uh, But here are the four root idols that we're going to be struggling with. Control, approval, comfort, and performance. So we're professing Christ, but what we're actually holding more dear, what our lives are more circled around than Christ, uh, typically falls in one of these four clean categories. Control, approval, comfort, or performance. And so we're just going to spend, like I said, the next 10 minutes trying to break these down and deconstruct ourselves so we can walk out of here not feeling bad about our situation, but becoming aware of our situation, right? Actually knowing where we stand and what we're holding tight. So the first one, and, and I'll put this one first because I think this is the one that Peter struggled with the most, is God is great so I don't have to be in control. Now, let's just be real. We're all family here. Uh, raise your hand if you're more of a control freak. Let me see it. You love to be in control. Control is your thing. If you're not in control, you start to worry, you start to fret, you start to fear. Well, here's the, here's the idea of that. We want to control because we don't really believe that God is great. That we, our control is our big temptation, is our big idol, because we don't really think Jesus is great. We don't really think that God is great, that God can handle it, so therefore, I have to be in control. Therefore, I have to lead. I have to take care of this. We don't know what it really feels like just to rest and know that someone's got it, right? So here's kind of what the fruit might look like. So as I'm reading these, let me know if this is some of your personality traits by maybe an amen. Just kidding, you don't have to do that. Overbearing. 
And don't point either, like if this is someone around you, like, hey, bro, that's you. You're totally overbearing. Don't do that. Do that in more of a private setting. Overbearing, inflexible, risk-averse, impatient, or worried. I'll read those again. Overbearing, inflexible, risk-averse, impatient, or worried. And my hope with having this up there was so that like, we could actually write some of these things down. We'll leave this up on the screen after the gathering's over so you can come write some of this down if you want to. But is your idol control? Are you impatient? Do you have to be in control? Um, if you're not, how do you feel? Are you worried? Are you overbearing? And as Peter was this way. In this moment, the control that he thought he was, that the Messiah was going to rule everything, was going to take over everything, and he was going to be a part of it, as soon as he figured out Jesus was going to die and they actually weren't going to be in control, he starts to freak out, right? He rebukes the king that he just said, hey, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, now let me tell you where you're wrong. That's, that's, that's total control because Peter wasn't in control. Now here's... If, all my cards on the table, there's two that really, pre- uh, really resonate with me. This is definitely one of them. I am constantly 20 steps ahead of everything. I want to make sure, now if someone else is leading in a good way and everything's fine, I don't have to be in control as long as I know they're in control. So if control is taking place, how sick is this? This talking just makes me feel dirty. If someone is in control and it's actually controlled, I'm okay with them having control. But if it's not controlled, I'm going to jump in and control it because I like control. Did I mention I like control? So here's a perfect example of this. When a lot of times when I um, will punish one of my kids, right, when they're being disrespectful, when something takes place and they get a punishment, one of the roots of this punishment is really just because I don't feel like I'm in control in that moment. That they've taken the control of the situation, that threatens me, and I need to be in control, so I'm going to punish them, discipline them to remain in control. That's what that fleshes itself out. That's what it really looks like. I don't have, and I'm working on this, but again, this is one of my idols. I don't have the ability yet just to take a deep breath and go, God is great. So whatever happens, happens. It's good. I don't have to be in control of this thing. He's in control of this thing. And when you start to, if, if this is you, if this is the, I need to be in control when you start to get into situations where you feel like you can't control, a lot of times you'll just quit. You're so hungry to be in control that if you're not in the one to control, you might go have a little pity party in the corner. So here's kind of an encouragement for you. And this is something, if you've ever been around me for a long period of time, you'll just hear me say, man, you need to go read Matthew 6, 25 through 34. And I love to give that advice because I like to be in control. Matthew 6, 25 through 34 is the root of what this talks about. We don't have to go through all of it, but make sure that you take time to, if this is you, write this down and go study it. But the whole thing Jesus is talking about, what does it mean for us to just trust him? That God takes care of the flowers of the field, that he takes care of the birds of the air. The flowers are more beautiful than any girl on her wedding day. You're worried about your clothes because you're not in control? Or the birds, are they, are they freaking out? Are they fretting because they don't know where their next meal is going to come from? If God takes care of the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, how much more is he going to take care of you? How much more is he going to take care of me? So I can just take a breath and trust that he's in control. 
So if this is you, here's maybe something you can wrestle with. Um, Jesus was raised from the dead when all was lost, seemingly. When there seemed to be no hope, when there seemed to be no future, when it seemed that all hope was lost with Jesus' death, that's when he took control of the situation. And we talked about this some on Easter. You don't have to be in control because when things are spinning out of control, that's typically when Jesus shows up the most. Now here's the second one. Um, maybe that's not you. Good, so be it. God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. So the root idol here is approval. And Kyle has kind of zoomed in for us. The root idol here is approval. So what you struggle with the most is being a people pleaser that you have to be approved of by other people. Anyone say, yeah, that's me. I need to be approved of people constantly. And here's kind of some of the fruits of that. Uh, you avoid conflict because conflict would might make some ruffled feathers and you wouldn't be approved of. Um, you're easily offended, you're codependent, or, and you're inauthentic. So you're that person that maybe like every opinion is your opinion. Even though you hate burgers, everyone in your crew, you want to go grab some burgers? I love burgers. They're so good. I've been a vegetarian for 12 years, but I love burgers. Like that's you because you're so afraid of what people might actually say about you that you're so focused on getting approval that you're just going to compromise, that you're going to be inauthentic because you're so afraid of that. And what we're not understanding is that God is glorious, that God is so glorious that he doesn't need, you don't need your approval from others. Here's maybe the, the illustration, the root of all this. You're constantly going through your mind. If people knew this about me, then they would never hang out with me. If people really knew me, if people really knew this, then. We have no framework in our minds that everyone in this room is struggling with that. Everyone in this room has those feelings, but we're so focused on approval that we don't even want to mention this. We don't want to let people know that we're worried or we're fearful, and this is where some of that inauthenticity comes out. We can't be authentic because then that would mean we struggle and we doubt and we are angry about things, so we're just going to keep it all down to keep people happy. That approval, we're missing the fact that we've already been approved by God. That God has already loved us, that even when we were still sinners, he died for us. Approval has taken place. So we don't have to, we just need to focus on the fact that God is glorious. And if this is you, maybe here's some encouragement, Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If we were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Whose approval are we really after? I mean, have we sat through that? Who, who do you really want to impress and why do you want to impress them? What does it really matter what that person thinks? But our idol is, and again, there's some logic here, but then there's some spiritual warfare here too. I can logically tell you why your idol is stupid. I can logically tell myself why my idol of control makes no sense logically, but is an idol for that reason. That logic doesn't necessarily interfere with that. It's a spiritual battle going on among us. So Galatians 1.10, just focusing on and dwelling on the fact that, man, if we were trying to please men, 
we would not be a servant of Christ. So here's, here, if this is you, maybe here's some, some things for you to chew on. Because of Jesus, we are fully approved by the most glorious one ever, God himself. So because of Jesus and what he did on the cross, we have been fully approved by God, the most glorious one. So what does it matter what people around you think if God approves of you already? Right? So maybe that's not you. Maybe it's not control. Maybe it's not approval. Uh, maybe it's comfort. I love comfort. So if God is good, or God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction. God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction. Your idol is comfort because you don't actually believe that God is good, that he can fully satisfy. So here's what it looks like. Uh, complaining of work, quits easily, runs to comfort or related sins, is bored or discontent. Who, again, we're just being honest here, who thinks comfort is their deal? Anyone? No one. Cool, we'll skip over that one. Uh, has anyone ever seen the movie Ratatouille? This is really stupid, but whatever. It came to me about one o'clock last night. Yeah, Ratatouille, right? It's a great movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you should go watch it. It's totally clean. Um, it's a cartoon. But in Ratatouille, there's, <laughs> I cannot believe I'm making a sermon reference about Ratatouille. I've got four kids. There's a disclaimer. I watch Ratatouille. So he's a rat that, uh, I can't even do this. We're not, I'm not going to go there. Go watch the movie. He breaks out of his shell. I'm just going to say it. This is so stupid, but here's what it is. So Ratatouille in the movie um, loves food. I mean, he's a rat. He's got the nose. And so his whole family is so comfortable. They just eat trash. They eat whatever comes. They're rats, right? There's the snort. Uh, so he, they're just rats. They enjoy whatever they eat. But Ratatouille says, no, like, there's got to be more than this. There's got to be better food. So he goes and, like, controls a chef by his hair, and it's really funny. Uh, but, the, but the big thing is that he was not okay with being comfortable. He knew that there was something better out there for him. That he understand that there's a bigger thing going. And so for us, if we're struggling with this root idol of comfort, it's because we don't really believe that God is good and there could be something better for us. That we don't really believe that there's something else out there. We think, this is it. This is what I've been, this is the hand I've been dealt. This is fine. God can't fix this situation. God can't do anything different than this. God is not that good. So I'm just going to stay here in my filth. I'm going to be lazy. I'm going to be discontent. I'm going to be comfortable. And you can hear these people just in the way they talk. Just, in the, just talking to them for a little bit, you can hear this comfort start coming out. I can do anything different. And for them, I would say Psalms 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So taste and see that the Lord is good, that there's something better, that God's way is better than your way. So true satisfaction is found in God, the giver of life, and Jesus gives full access to him. That true satisfaction, that, that there's nothing else that we can chase that's going to satisfy us the way that God does. And the last one, and this is, again, we, we should probably resonate with one or two of these. This is the other one I resonate with. It's performance. Our idol is performance. We've talked about control. We've talked about comfort. Uh, we've talked about, uh, what's the other one? Approval. And now we're going to end with performance. God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. God is gracious, so I don't have to, oh, excuse me, what am I trying to say? Prove myself. So I find my value in performance, in the way that I perform. Would anyone else say that's them? 
I find my approval, how good I feel about myself, is how well I perform. Now, raise your hand if you grew up playing sports. At some level, this is naturally ingrained in all of us if you've grown up playing sports. If you don't perform, you're cut. If you don't perform, you don't play. If you're not good enough, you're not on the team. If you're not good enough, you're sitting on the bench the rest of the season. If you're not good enough, if you don't perform, you're out. So we naturally start to take this idea and, and put that on. That must be how God views us. And the root of the fruit of this unbelief is a burden, fierce humiliation, hard on self and on others, and is not quick to forgive. Let me read those again. Burdened, fierce humiliation, hard on self and others, and not quick to forgive. Now here's kind of where the performance idea, we can trick ourselves. And this is how I trick myself. Um, if it's worth doing, do it right. If you're going to do it, put your everything into it. If you're going to do it, do it. Don't just halfway do it. Some of my coaches would have another vernacular for that sentence, but I can't say that here. Don't just halfway do it. Do it. If you're going to do something, put everything into it. But Galatians 2.21 says this, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Because the root of our performance is we think if we perform well enough, then we can earn God's love for us. That if we try hard enough, if we do everything we can, if we perform incredibly well, we don't really need Christ. Now, none of us would ever say that, but that's the motivation that we're, that we're running with. Or maybe if you're like me, I perform well because I don't want to disappoint. And if I don't think I can win, maybe I don't play the game. Anyone else? If I don't think I can do this thing, I'm not going to trust God because my value, my identity is based on my performance. And if my performance, I think, cannot handle the situation, then I'm just going to drop out so that I don't look bad. Because everything I have is based on this idea of my performance earns my right. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not a performance. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not based on any way we perform. And I can see this in my kids. I mean, if my daughter were to come to me and say, hey, Dad, you're good. I appreciate all you're doing, but uh, I, can, I can do this. I've got, I'm, I'm in control. I know I'm only two, but I can handle this. I'm going to start paying rent. I can take care of myself. You don't have to do this anymore. It's kind of comical, but we do that with Christ. Hey, my performance can take care of me. I can handle this. You don't, you don't have to worry about me, God. You don't have to worry about I, I can perform well enough because we don't believe God is actually gracious. We don't believe that God would love us even though we don't perform well. Now, why is this deconstruction important? One, because it's biblical. We see this very quickly taking place in Peter's life. But if we don't understand who Jesus is, then we're going to miss who God is. If we don't understand who Jesus is, then we're going to quickly miss who God is. Write down John 14, 9. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So if we understand Jesus and his character and his nature and what he's done for us, then we understand who God is and what he's done for us through Jesus, 
then some of these idols will start to fall away. But the, step, the first step we have to land is, what is our root idol? Comfort, control, performance. What, what is it that we deeply struggle with? And this sermon isn't going to end with some huge application. Remember, this is a two-part. This is just a deconstruction. We just want to identify. The next week we'll talk about, now, excuse me, now what do we do with that? We have to understand, we have to know who Jesus is so that we can pursue and know who God is. 1 Corinthians, I'll end with this passage. 1 Corinthians 2.2 says this, For I've decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what we want to know, what we want to understand is nothing else other than who we are in light of who Jesus is. So this is why at the branch every single Sunday that we end with communion, we take the body that's broken for us and we dip it into um, the juice that represents his blood because that's what we want to know. We want to know who Jesus is because if we know who Jesus is rightly, we know who God is. And that's when the universe starts to fall into play. When we understand that God is good, that God is gracious, um, that who he is and who his nature and character is, then we rightly understand our idols and how to get rid of them and we start to naturally pursue holiness more. Pursue a full life more. Because I could just throw this out there. Who's actually fully satisfied yet? Is your idol working for you? Is your control, is that, is that okay or you may be on some anti-anxiety medicine? Right? Is your performance working for you? Or are you constantly worried about what people are saying behind your back? Is your approval working out for you? Or is it keeping you from inauthentic relationships? Does your comfort work? Are you fully satisfied in your comfort? Of course not. Of course not. When we know Jesus, we know the Father, and when we know the Father, we know hope, and we know joy, and we understand grace. So what is it for you? And when we go to take communion in a second, when you take that bread and you dip it in the juice, would you just repent from your performance idol? Would you say, Jesus, this is not what I want to be. This is not what I want to hold higher than you and your love for me. So I repent from this. I don't know what that fully means yet, but I'm giving you my idol of performance. I'm giving you my idol of comfort. I'm giving you my idol of control. Giving you my idol of approval. What is it that when we understand Christ and him crucified, it's easier for us to give up? So I'm going to pray for us, and then we will just kind of stay seated. You can have some time of prayer to, to dwell on maybe what idol you're wrestling with the most, and then whenever you're ready, communion will be open for us as we continue in worship. So let me pray. And Father, our, our actions matter. Now what you were teaching Peter in that moment is how quickly we confess you as Christ and then act like we didn't just say that. How quickly we can say how good you are and that you are the Christ, that you are the Messiah, but our actions will start to show that we think we're the Christ, that we think we're our own Savior. So, Father, even though this, this idea is, is not the most comfortable idea to wrestle with, 
What, we're, what is our idol? What are we holding among and above you? Father, isn't the most joyful thing to communicate and to understand? God, but we're asking you to remove those idols from us so that we can see you more clearly. Because when we see you, we see the Father. And that's where hope and joy is found. That's where real John 10, 10, life to the full comes from, is understanding you and your Father and your love for us. So church, what is it? What are the one or two idols that we wrestle with the most? What is keeping us from being fully vulnerable in front of our Father? What is keeping us from from loving and serving and being obedient? What is it? And this morning, as, as we're starting to deconstruct some of our idols, Father, would we confess that to you? Would we admit that this is an idol for us and we don't want this to be an idol any longer? That you are good you do love us, that you are gracious. And God, we are nothing apart from you. So I'm, I'm not going to say amen. I'm just going to leave us in this state of prayer. So just continue to pray, continue to repent, continue to confess your idol. And when you are ready, communion is open. Just, you can go take it whenever you're ready. But this moment is where joy will start to come for us. When we start to rightly put Jesus on the throne and take ourselves off, is when true joy and happiness will be found. So just continue to pray, and whenever you're ready, communion is open.